Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 35,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been living with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm Uh. feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Kia g'day. My name's Craig Sisterson, and I'm incredibly thrilled today to bring, be bringing you a takeover episode of the wonderful Danny V's Words and Nerds podcast. This may be the start of a new series where we look at the global world of crime fiction. And today I have four outstanding exponents of historical mysteries for us, because as they say, the past is another country. So not only are we going to be delving into four different locations, but four different time periods with four absolutely must-read authors. You will have heard of some of these guys. You want to read them all. I'm joined today by the wonderful Abir Mukherjee, Naomi Hirahara, Laura Shepard-Robinson, and D.V. Bishop. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Fantastic. Now, we're going to get to know these four outstanding authors over the course of the next half an hour or 40 minutes or so while talking about their books, their characters, their sittings, why they love crime fiction, the devious things in their mind that they take us on the roads of mysteries. But we're all going to learn that together. I could spend half an hour listing all their accolades. They've won and been shortlisted for Edgar's and historical mystery awards and historical writers association and cwa daggers and thinks to know peculiar crime this is some of the creme de la creme the absolute top shelf of historical mystery writing i'm absolutely thrilled to be bringing it to you i thought we could start guys on what was it about the particular time period and location of your historical novels that drew you to that time period laura do you want to tell us what it was about georgian england 1780s england with your books Blood and Sugar and Daughters of Night. What was it about that time and that location that drew you to write about it? So I've always been really fascinated by the 18th century because um, I, I feel it was a real coming together of a time period where, uh, on the one hand, you've got uh, the development of a huge amount of philosophical and political thought that still very much underpins the society that we live in today. Ideas about liberal democracy and the rights of man and a lot of, as they would describe it, enlightened thinking. But at the same time, you've got a society that is um, is, is promoting the slave trade, um, that is full uh, of blood sports, has a really brutal penal system, abject poverty, um, and a whole raft of other things that we would look at today and say um, uh, are manifestations of a very brutal society. And I find that um, that clash quite an interesting one. And it struck me as a really um, fertile ground for writing crime. Yeah. And was it, did you decide the setting before you came up with your main characters of the Corsham's? Was it like, did, did you have the characters first and then the setting or was it the setting that really drew you first? I wanted, I knew I wanted to write a novel in the, in the 18th century. I think I sort of went from there 
to um, theme in my books. My first novel was about the slave trade. My second novel was about the sex trade in Georgian London. And um, the characters kind of grew out of, out of those themes really. Um, so it was kind of a, a kind of juxtaposition of all of them, I think. And, and David, I'm curious because similar to Laura, you're dealing with a, a different time period in a different nation, but it's that same clash of kind of beauty and brutality because you're taking us into Renaissance Florence and we've got all this Renaissance art and all these things that centuries later we love, but it was a pretty brutal time in many other ways, particularly for characters such as your main character and some of the people he comes into contact with. What was it about Renaissance Florence that made you want to take readers there for your first historical mystery? I mean, it's exactly what you said. It is that that combination of things. You have, you know, uh, Florence at this period was the sort of the cradle of modern civilization, uh, humanism, the revival of the classicism. And so you have this incredible art and architecture and painting and buildings and, and music all emerging at the same time. And yet you also have sort of the cut and thrust of politics at its most savage, its most Machiavellian. I mean, this literally gives us Machiavelli. Um, so you have the combination of these two things going on and, you know, stratas of society and and uh, the difficulties of uh, putting, you know, I don't know, Michelangelo next to people that would quite happily just strangle somebody in the cells because they were inconvenient to the whoever the political leaders of the day were. So it, it felt like if you could put those two things together and say they could coexist at the same time then what does that say about society that we sort of look back at the renaissance and go oh well this is the, the flowering of modern society here and yet all these horrible things are happening at the same time i guess it tells us a lot about our society on both sides of the coin doesn't it as we carry on even if we like to look at the beautiful things from the past and abir and naomi two amazing award-winning authors as well and you both take us kind of into the past but the more recent past in the 20th century and, and both kind of either side of the second world war kind of with the british raj and then what was going on for people in the United States at the tail end of the war. And Naomi, I'm curious for you, because you've written several contemporary novels. You've got two series and you've written a number of books. And then you've taken us back into 1944 Chicago with Clark and Division, this amazing book. What was it that made you want to tell that story at that time? Yeah, it's been interesting because actually my whole professional life's mission has been to tell the story of Japanese Americans, especially during the World War II era, um, because, and some of its influence because of my, you know, my community, but also because I had worked for uh, a Japanese American newspaper for a number of years, a total of 10 years. And I just felt, I mean, it's, I love the mystery, John, that the community itself sometimes doesn't want to hear but if it's packaged in this genre, there's like a preparation. Okay, this this is what go, there's has to be a crime, and I think um, with like the uh, removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast and then into ten incarceration camps, there's been a lot of shame mm -hmm. that even though you know this was a civil rights violation, but I think a lot of people at the time kind of felt like I must have done something wrong in order to be treated this way. So there was not a lot of things shared generationally. So, um, so in the position I've 
been in to kind of do a deep dive. And what I say, I wasn't alive at the time, although some people ask me, like, what camp were you in? It's like, I wasn't born in the 19th, you know, I wasn't alive. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, I, I'm kind of like a witness to uh, witnesses. Mm. So um, just that kind of personal relationships, I think, have helped me. So in terms of this book, because like you said, I've done more contemporary and kind of cold case, you know, mm. there, it's set in the present day, but there's some kind of crime that takes place in the future. I think some of it was, I wanted to make sure because I'm also a nonfiction writer, that I told those stories in the nonfiction context. But that kind of generation's almost all gone now. So now I think it's the time for fiction writers like me to kind of fill in the gaps. And the way um, Chicago is so interesting is because that was the number one destination for people out of the camps and people don't know. And also Chicago is a notorious town and there were a lot of crimes even within the community, community that was um, done. So for me, when I saw that list of uh, juvenile delinquency or criminal infractions, I go, okay, this is my entryway in. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make about fact and fiction and telling stories from the past. I'd like to get all of your perspectives on that a little bit later, how you balance that research and reality versus telling a fictional exciting story. But before we dive into that, perhaps, Abia, you can tell us what it was for you that made you want to write your first mystery novels and now an outstanding five book series set in the British Raj of 1920s India. I think before that, I should say, I'm just thankful nobody said to me, where did you live during the Raj? Uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've not had that question yet, Naomi, but I'm sure it's coming. It's the, the question is coming. Um, but similar, similar sort of feelings to Naomi on this. I, I'm, I wanted to write about a history that we don't talk about. Um, you know, David mentioned society and, and Laura mentioned the, the, the uh, an era on which much of our present society is built on. Well, the, the British Raj, the, the colonial period is something which many of the lies that we tell ourselves, many of our myths about nation and about what it means to be British were built in that period. And, you know, when I was going to school, we never learned about British history. We never learned British colonial history. We learned more about German history and Italian history than we did about British history during the wars. So for me, as the son of Indian immigrants, it was really, it started off as this search for my own identity because I would learn something at school and I would come home and my dad and mum would tell me a completely different version of history. Um, and half the time they were wrong and half the time the school was wrong. Um, but very quickly you dis discover when you sit between cultures, you, you develop this sort of cultural schizophrenia, you develop this, um, this unwillingness to accept anything you're told. You don't just swallow things. Um, so for me, it was really a hunt for the truth of this period. And as Naomi said, you know, sometimes it's a difficult truth. And when you wrap that difficult truth in a mystery novel or a crime novel, it becomes a much more palatable thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's why I, I want, that's why I started looking at this period. I wanted to get to the truth of this relationship of the British in India. Uh, and I'm not sure I've got very far. Well, it's an interesting point I'm kind of getting from all of you that you're all wanting to share hidden truths of an of a 
interesting era, um, era that you're interested in for a variety of reasons. I was actually speaking to a New Zealand storyteller earlier tonight, a man by the name of Michael Bennett, who's a Maori screenwriter and director, and he's got his first crime novel coming out later this year. And he said something interesting when we were having a discussion with some people with his publisher uh, about um, how he's actually born on the 5th of November which is Guy Fawkes, um, for, for those in the States, perhaps not as aware as kind of a, a British, kind of British and British colonies um, celebration of when Guy Fawkes tried to blow up the British Parliament years ago and there's fireworks and everything like that. Um, and he said he learned more about Guy Fawkes at school than he did about Maori culture, even though he was Maori in New Zealand kind of thing. And I'm kind of getting that from each of you. And in each of your books, some of the things I really loved, and Laura, you take us into the slave trade of blood and sugar. And that's something that that, you know, often I think some British people think of as a very American thing. They think of the slavery yeah. in America and people taking the slaves to America and they don't realise that Britain was a huge part of that really horrific trade. And, and David, you take us into the life of uh, kind of a gay man in this era when it was, you know, punishable by death and and, and lots of other, and you take us into other areas of life and, and Naomi, you take us into like the Japanese internment camps, which have been hidden from history. And I've heard of George Takai and others saying how, you know, it doesn't get really talked about in American military history. So each of you are taking us in to those areas, which I find incredibly fascinating. It's helpful that you're all very good storytellers too. But for each of you, how do you balance that kind of reality and fiction? Because you want to give the reader a sense of the time and place, and you obviously do some research, but you don't want to go too far and just make it a, a historical nonfiction book. So, Laura, how when you kind of delved into some of these issues, how did you strike the balance between giving us a taste of it exposing readers to these issues would love for people to think about more but not overdoing it I mean I think for me it's quite a it's quite a sort of symbiotic process in the sense that the research that I do and the story are always informing each other and I get a lot of um, inspiration for storylines for characters from real life incidents um, uh, I'm constantly being inspired by my research people sort of say to me sometimes um you know god you must have to do so much research but because I find it so helpful in terms of plot as well it doesn't actually it, it doesn't feel onerous um you know I feel sorry for the people who have to do it all in you know off their own imagination um and so I find that it it, it really does in inform in um the stories that I write but having said that story has got to always be king nobody wants to read um you know a, a list of interesting tidbits about history that you've that you've gleaned out of other people's research books you know you've got to create a story with living breathing characters of their time um at the heart of those novels and their emotional experiences are more important than any bit of research that you can do so I, I i think it's 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 a sense of balance for me but it's also about prioritization that this is somebody's story and it needs to feel as real as somebody's story today if if you were writing a contemporary novel did you find the balance difficult naomi being that you know, this is a time period that would be kind of 
quite significant for you personally or your family personally because it's a hidden truth about how your own ethnicity was treated in the country that you were born in and have called home. And for the listeners out there, Naomi was born in California, but I understand your parents were Hiroshima survivors. Is that correct? So so I'd imagine this is a, a, a challenging time period for you to revisit. So. I think for me, what I felt I could bring to my historical novel was voice. Um, I purposely, uh, well, the number of, most of the uh, people who went to Chicago in the beginning from the camps were young because they were American citizens, so they could wave the flag, or at least, you know, in, in terms of being interviews and questionnaires that they were patriotic and, and thus uh, allowed to leave early. So, um I, I myself, Avira mentioned he's the child of immigrants and my mother is a Japanese immigrant. So I felt that's what I could bring to the story. Um, that, and that's why it's in first person. Some people have commented that the prose is real simple and it's, it's like purposely that way. And sometimes I feel like, why can't, you know, I'm sure many of you write more lush historical fiction but I felt for this one, I need to distill the voice. And because so many things were happening that were very complicated, um, I needed like a vehicle, like a glider that could take, you know, easily take the reader from whatever country into this world. So that was my strategy. And in terms of, I think when you're soaked in history, um, it's it's not that difficult to kind of, cherry pick the important concrete things that bring your story alive. I think sometimes if the history is so new to you that because I've seen that in some historical fiction, like there'll be a chunk, like Mm -hmm. this is the lesson here. But I think if you know it and it's organically within you, and I'm not talking about, you know, generationally, I'm just talking about our passion for it, that it's going to, you know, organically reveal itself. And, and David, I mean, I understand that you kind of fell in love with the idea of writing about Renaissance Florence a long time before you wrote City of Vengeance, which was your first um, historical mystery. One of my favourite books of last year, along with Clark and Division. It's absolutely terrific. And um, But what was it that over that time where you found yourself doing a lot of research, finding out lots of interesting things, and we can talk about the the butchery on the on the bridges and stuff like that, which is a, a great little touch of something that a place that people who visit Florence nowadays will know and what the real history of that place was. Um, but how did you strike that balance of like some lot enough detail to give color and not too much that you were just becoming a historical treatise and rather than a story? Yeah, that was I'm. I've spent years not writing, starting this series, um, because I felt like I didn't know enough and I couldn't write credibly about the period. I'm not Italian, I'm not from Florence, certainly not from the 16th century. Um, So as a consequence, I was like, there's so much I don't know, there's so much I need to know to try and tell the story. And so I spent years not writing it and thinking I had to try and know everything. But eventually I came to the conclusion, I will never know everything. And even if I could know everything, I'm not sure that would help me tell a better story. So what I have to, I've got a bookshelf behind me, which is laden with all the texts I've collected over the years. And what I do now is I will read all the texts relevant to a particular topic. So my latest book is set in a convent. So I read five or six different books about convents and made copious notes and then made a master document. 
and then never looked at any of the research while I was actually writing the book because it was just like I've absorbed it all and then when I was writing the story I would just go oh that would be a good thing oh hang on I remember there was this thing and that can go into here and so it was simply a case of sort of suffusing myself in the research and then setting it to one side and letting the story and the characters absolutely what, what Naomi and, and Laura have said about letting the story the stories emerge from the characters and grow organically and trust that you know my research would come to the fore when required and mostly that's happened also you know thank goodness for copy editors to catch you at the moment where you've forgotten that people didn't eat I don't know they didn't eat meat during Lent I was like oh yeah I really should have remembered that having been brought up Catholic, but there you go. Yeah, yeah no, I think that's a, that's an interesting way to, to do it as well, because if you do that research and then put it aside, then the things that are most interesting or most relevant will stick in your head and will pop up, whereas the other things that are perhaps extraneous and were interesting to read about but wouldn't be interesting in the story kind of almost self-filter out. Do you do anything like that yourself, Abir, with the research that you've done? Well, well, my research, I should point out that I have two advantages. Um, one is that I have very limited imagination. So the research often, as, as Laura says, can form the basis for a plot. The other advantage I have is that I'm quite lazy. So I get bored of research after a while and I have to start writing. Um, so, so these two have held me in good stead. But in terms of my process, um, like David, I will, you know, because my books follow chronologically, I know roughly when they're going to take place. So I will research firstly the year that mm -hmm. I'm looking at. So if my next book's 1924, I will look at Indian history and see if there's anything that needs to be in there that really appeals to me or if there was anything big. Uh, happening. So my third book, Smoke and Ashes, is set during you know Gandhi's first non-violent protest where he brought the nation out on, on strike effectively and the British send the Prince of Wales to India on this you know goodwill mission and he didn't want to be there, he just wanted to be in London with his mistress. So he ends up in India and he just golfs and shoots his way across the country and he ends up in Calcutta on Christmas Day and I just thought that's that's a brilliant backdrop for the story. So part of the research is is that historical setting. Um, but then, as Laura said, I think a lot of it comes down to theme. I will research the topic that uh, really interests me. And a lot of the times that topic, that theme has nothing to do with the past. It's whatever is bothering me today, be it Brexit or this or that or Hindu extremism in India. And I will put that into the book. So my research tends to take two or three forms. So the first would be this research on the theme and research on the history, uh, which I'll do for a couple of months. I'll read, um, but then I'll put that aside and then I'll write. But as I'm writing, you've got that sort of ad hoc research that you have to do. Like, how did a Wurlitzer work? You know, when was All India Radio founded? You know, the wee things that you need to find. Um, but, you know, I don't know the limits. I mean, I, I did this one day. I, I, I researched the Calcutta sewer system and I went down a rabbit hole. I didn't actually go into the sewer, but I went down this and and I and I ended up writing four pages about the Calcutta sewer system, which my editor just scored out. And I said, well, how's everyone going to realise how clever I am if I don't? And they said, nobody needs to know this. Um, so I don't have a balance. I, I do what I need to do and then other people fix it. Can I add something um, yeah, real briefly? Um, I... Uh, Avir mentioned about looking at a particular year or and, and that's been super helpful for me um, because I 
don't, you know, even though I know a lot about this history, I, I don't want to be responsible for this wide swath. So when I do a deep dive into like 1944, right now I'm looking at 1946 and it's Los Angeles. And even, you know, my title is Clark and Division. It's a certain neighborhood. So, and I don't live in Chicago, I'm in LA. So I knew that I was subject to a lot of criticism because I'm, you know, people would hold, hold me to the fire if I got something wrong. So that helped that I was looking at a very specific neighborhood that people really don't know about today. But I have a question for Naomi, if you don't mind, Craig. Has, yeah, anybody, no, ever, has, has anybody ever pulled you up on, on any details like that? Um, the only person was it was what you mentioned those little wee wee details, and 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 uh, luckily it was James Ben, one of my um, uh, colleagues at Soho, and he saw the arc, and I did this error. It was 1940s, and I had them opening up a beer, <laughs> like with a beer tab, and yeah, and luckily he was saying, well, you know, I know someone, everyone caught this, but. They, you know, they didn't have tabs in 1940s. I'm going, oh, so luckily that was all cleaned up. <laughs> but many people who read the arc got back to me, you know, and, and it was a very serious infraction, historical infraction. <laughs> Alcoholics everywhere. We're up yeah. in arms. It's amazing what readers pick up. Laura, David, if you, if you had readers all yourselves, would you have read back over yourself if you had picked up anything like that? Oh, um, when it comes to historical details, or had your editors do it? Did you have any kind of funny? I had the worst. The worst thing happened to me, which was that I had an error in my first book that was picked up by the king of historical crime, C.J. Sansom, oh, who who <laughs> found an error in my very first book, which was like you know, kind of rookie mistake. Basically, there was a coin that had been out of circulation just for a period of about fifty years. And I had included it in the book and he was like, that coin was not in circulation then. And so much to my shame, I had to, uh, the, the great recoinage took place in my books and, uh, and, we, and we, cut, we cut out all mention of that particular coin. And uh, actually, congratulations to CJ Sansom, who today, the day that we're recording this, has actually just been named the CWA Diamond Dagger Award. Wonderful, very well deserved. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. That's you definitely want to read these four authors, but you want to go read CJ Sansom as well if you have any interest at all in historical mysteries. So and David, any any kind of I know that you're just kind of two books in now, um, with the yeah. second one about to come out in March. Uh, really looking forward to that. But have you had anything from City of Vengeance where you've looked back or that was caught at the time by editors or yourself or anything when you were doing going through the process? Uh, one thing which wasn't caught at the time, but which I've discovered since to my shame, and there's nothing I can do about it because it's in the first two books and they're both printed now, is um, I probably get away with it in the, in, the, in the new one, but in the first one is they, uh, I've discovered they didn't have pews in churches in, 15, in the 1530s in, in Florence. I was like, well, everybody just stand around for the whole, yes, apparently everybody just stood up the whole way through church. And I was just like, I wish somebody had told me that I'd discover that because <laughs> I'm constantly acquiring new research books and I got one and I was reading, I just, my, my heart just blood ran cold. I was just like, oh, really? 
you couldn't have told me this sooner. <laughs> there's always someone out there that will pick it up for you. But at least you know that means there's lots of people reading it for someone to pick it up. One of my, I've been reviewing about 13, 14 years for newspapers and magazines. And about my second or third year in, I actually got an email from a reader of a magazine I wrote for um, saying really nice things about a review of a Lee Child I book. Uh, Lee Child book I'd done 61 hours but then at the end of the last bit of their email was but I don't understand how you could give it a positive review overall even though it was a good book because there's no way the explosion could have happened the way that Mr Child put it and, and I was sitting there going okay so you like the rest of the book and the explosion wasn't quite right all right um, I'm not sure if Lee would actually put in exactly how to make the explosion happen for anyone anyway might be one of those leave an ingredient out kind of things when it comes to that but, but it's uh, it made me realize from very early on in my reviewing days how much uh, readers will care about even the smallest details and that that is obviously um, exacerbated potentially for historic fiction as well so Yes, it's the challenge. It's just, it's the tiny details. Like, how long does it take to ride by horse for seven miles <laughs> at, at different speeds? Yeah. And when you're doing the research and when you're writing the book, have, have you, because you're obviously interested in these areas to and these eras and areas, when you first decide to write about them, have you come across surprising things yourselves? What have you learned through the process of writing these stories? Perhaps something about an era that you didn't know when you look back. Naomi, was the something you learned about Japanese-American history and the war era that kind of shocked or surprised you or was just a little bit different to what you expected? I don't think it was a shock, but it was really interesting to compare Chicago you know, that which is in the middle of a con our, our country and the West Coast, mm -hmm. because um, they allowed intermarriage, Chicago did. And it, that was like a no-no, you know, on the West Coast. So an Asian person could not legally marry a white person. And it was just like, it. and then of course in Chicago, Japanese Americans weren't, did not have to be removed because they were in the middle of the country. So it was, it was kind of interesting to kind of compare like these People are both Americans of Japanese ancestry, but kind of geography kind of determined um, their lives, you know, even love. And Laura, was there anything from George in England that took you by surprise as you've been researching oh, God, your books? Like countless things all the time. Um, one of my favorite um, things that I came across when I was researching Daughters of Night, which has a sort of theme of um, artifice and, and concealment, which was... Um, uh, ever present in Georgian society um, was that um, I'm sure you've all heard of the gin craze of, of the um, 18th century um, and gin was kind of killing lots of people and it, it, parliament decided to tax it really heavily and to combat these taxes um, a whole series of illegal gin sellers would set up and the magistrates would in turn try to expose these illegal gin sellers through the use of um, forgive me, gin formants. And these gin formants would go around <laughs> London um, trying to buy gin and then and then grassing up the people who sold them the gin. So this very enterprising man called Dudley Bradstreet, he rented a house and he um, shuttered the windows of this house, but he let it be known that gin was for sale at this house. And on the, on the shutter of this house, he put a carved relief of a cat and the cat had one outstretched paw and a slot where its mouth was. And you would go up to this shuttered window and you would go, puss, puss, 
Puss, are you there, Puss? And from behind the window, Captain Bradstreet went, Mew, Mew. <laughs> and that was the signal that he was in and you could buy gin there. And you would put your two pence through the slot in the cat's mouth and you'd have your little cup and you'd put it under their paw and he would fill it up with gin through a concealed spout under the paw. And that way, he, you could get your gin, but you could never inform on Captain Bradstreet. I'm just having this picture where, where there's the front paw or the back paw that it's pouring and out it's of the front paw. They were called Puss and Mews, and they were so successful, they sprang up all over London, <laughs> that's defeating that's... the gin formants. So <laughs> outstanding. Abia, David, do you have any oh. kind of quirky little things from your research? So many, whether it's the Maharaja who tried to kill his British advisor with poisoned grapefruit juice, or the other Maharaja who gave his British advisor a present of a golf bag, which was made out of the foreskin of an elephant's penis. You know, there are so many of these. These are the way that Indians got back at the British. You see. Um, but there's there's so many stories like that. You know, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. And um, when I was researching nuns in Renaissance Florence, at this point in history, I think it's something, the estimates of one in 12 women in Renaissance Florence were in convents. At this point in history, it was like you got married or you basically worked till you died or you were in a convent. Those it was like the, the, the veil or the marriage bed were your two options if you were a woman at this point in history. But actually, convents, they gave women a lot of autonomy. They had agency over their decisions. They could decide things collectively as a group mm -hmm. in the chapter house. But there was this wonderful story of a, a group of nuns and the men, the clerics from the diocese were coming to try and shut them down, to close down the convent. So these nuns all clambered onto the roof of their convent house and started lifting the terracotta tiles and lobbing them down at these men in their clerical garbs of bishops and, and monsignors and saw them off effectively by this barrage of roof tiles. Um, and I just, I just loved it. I so wanted to put it in the book, and I just, I just could not justify it for story purposes. I just, oh, it just killed me not to be able to put it in. But if it doesn't fit the story, it doesn't go in. No, in the end, the story has to win out. Um, we don't have very much time left. I would love to spend hours and hours with these guys. You definitely want to go out and grab their books. You're, you're up for some outstanding storytelling. I guess just to quickly touch on, perhaps, guys, um, that idea of you're writing about the past, but quite often the themes are very much about today. It's that idea of if history doesn't repeat, it definitely rhymes. And, and is that something that you found, uh, each of you, perhaps you could give us just a quick thought on that. We've got a couple of minutes to go, but a, a beer. Have, have you found that the British Raj has um, uncanny Absolutely. similarities to, to, to 21st <laughs> century? <laughs> yeah. it, it's amazing what you can shoehorn in. I mean, as I, as I said, my fourth book, Death in the East, uh, it deals with Brexit, really. It deals with the attitudes that we have towards immigrants and immigration and and populism, the rise of populism. Um, we saw the same thing in 1905 when we had this Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe. So a lot of that book deals with that. My fifth book is probably the most Indian-centric of all the books. And, and it's it really deals with Hindu-Muslim tensions because it's my reaction to the rise of Hindu populism and extremism in India right now. So yeah, I mean, I write about what makes me angry, and I think I think most of us do. I mean, I know Naomi and uh, and and Laura certainly do. We we write about things which affect us today or affect society today. 
And it's, I mean, that you're dealing with a couple of big topics in your books so far as well, Blood and Sugar and Daughters of Night, Lauren. Is that, are they the current things making you angry and you're setting them in the past? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's, it's astonishing actually that I think since I started writing Blood and Sugar, which was probably what about seven years ago now, um, we've really started to talk, I mean, not because of my book, but just coincidentally, we've, we've really started to talk about that aspect of our history an awful lot more. Um, and, and it's long, long overdue. Um, but likewise with this, the sex trade in um, Daughters of Night, you know, one of the things that struck me was you would, I would be reading these, these contemporary debates about prostitution in the pages of like the gentleman's magazine and and and, and various other um Georgian newspapers and the similarities between the debates that we're still having about the sex trade today are absolutely astonishing um you know it's all the same arguments um by by similar sounding people so um yeah please change yeah, I think that's one of the things I love most about crime fiction. And Ian Rankin of others have called it crime as the modern social novel. And I think that applies whether you're setting it in modern times or in historical times like these fantastic authors. I've been Craig Sisterson. You've been listening to Words and Nerds podcast. Thank you so much to Abia Mukherjee, Naomi Hirahara, Laura Shepard-Robinson and David Bishop. Four outstanding writers. Go get all their books from your favourite local bookshop or your favourite local library. The Words and Nerds universe content is created by many talented people. We have the usual episodes and live streams hosted by me, Danny B. There are three regular spin-offs, the popular Burgers, Beers and Books hosted by Ben Hobson, the regular Takeover hosted by Nathan J. Phillips, and a different page hosted by Josie Layton. Check the Words and Nerds website for more details. We also have Takeover episodes where an author interviews another author and they take the conversation wherever they like. Throughout the year, we also have short spin-offs like the Summer Series Takeover, the NaNoWriMo Series and the Publishing Insider Series. You can find all of these episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll also find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, Danny B Books, Words and Nerds Podcast. Stay safe and read more books.